All right, for all you boppers out there in the big city, yeah. All you street people with an ear for the action. I'm from the streets. It's get your parents permission. Here's a hit with them in mind. Sometimes when it comes to me, it's me. I don't care what you say on the radio, but it's me. I know you. This nigga's talking crazy. I am fing somebody up. 
and physically, I mean. Hold it now. It's radio. Yeah. Talk radio with the streets is talking and everybody is talking. Because I do talk tough and I do do tough things. Welcome, welcome. This is Tough Talk Radio, and I'm your host, Rich Martini. I'm alongside the one and only Mr. Who? Mr. Preston, the one and only. All right, we got a special guest. You know, we're going to take it back a little bit. I mean, it's an honor, it's a privilege. Uh, we both grew up watching this gentleman on the show. Definitely. Uh, definitely a golden era of family television. We had the one and only Jeremy Miller. Show me that smile again. Don't waste Jeremy, how you doing? Guys, how you doing? I'm doing great tonight. Oh man, it's great. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, I mean, it's an honor to get to know you, get to talk to you. Going back to my youth and watching you on Growing Pains, I never thought in my day I'll be sitting here talking to you, the one and only Jeremy Miller. You know what I mean? Because you was an icon back then. You know what I mean? Or you was an icon as an actor. I mean, you Thank put you. it past tense. Don't to it, but, disrespect me. I'm gonna smack you up again. Fellas. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, we'll dive right into it. You know, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you is you growing up so quick on growing pains as an actor did playing that role did you have to um uh, did you have to live up to that image as an actor as a person going through your everyday life that's a good question um i kind of was like my character i mean it wasn't the it wasn't like i was playing somebody completely different from me i was playing a precocious goofy young guy who got in trouble all the time and you know couldn't shut up well that was kind of me anyway so, so I, you know you fit right so into it, that it role. wasn't the biggest yeah it, so it wasn't the biggest stretch but at the same time there's still an image you need to portray of professionalism um there were always publicists and your parents and producers and people telling you how you could look you know, I had a big battle with the producers over my hair because I just, I always liked my hair longer. They wanted it short. And as a 10 year old kid, I chose to die on that hill and was like, <laughs> no, I want, you know, I just, I absolutely, that was, that was the hill I was going to die on until my agent called and said, I wish a bitch would say, I yeah, you're going to get fired if you don't cut your hair. So needless to say, the hair got cut. But I digress. That was the part that was a little difficult growing up. Um, I mean, believe me, it's a you know very small thing, but it was difficult being told how you had to look, how you had to behave, um, because you were always in the public eye. And I mean, that was back then. I can't even imagine what it's like now with you know how these child actors have to deal with everybody having a you know video camera in their pocket and oh, yeah, every absolutely. second of their lives you know being subjected to exposure but even in our little world where that didn't exist you know you still had to carry yourself a certain way you had to look a certain way you had to be professional um even when you when you especially when you were out in the public eye i couldn't imagine being a nine-year-old or eight-year-old or a five-year-old trying to be an actor in today's time i mean that's just crazy honestly i have a lot of i have a lot of sympathy for the you know, young actors and young performers 
that are in this business, especially in this age of social media. This media gets kind of up sometimes when it comes to me. It's just everything is scrutinized. You have no privacy. I mean, I can't even imagine what Kirk's life would have been like. I I try to, I mean, you guys saw it back then, but I mean, I try to explain to kids now who, you know, oh, Justin Bieber is the biggest star there ever was. I'm like, what? Listen, let me explain something to you. (laughs) If Kirk was in an era of social media, his numbers would have been bigger. Not many who can match up with him. And I tell you this because in an era where we had no email, we had nothing. We were working with paper, pen, and stamps. Kirk was receiving 7,000-plus handwritten fan letters a day. Oh, my God! A day. Wow. It was insane. And to so, I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to live in this in this era and i can tell you i suffered from i i have a social anxiety disorder a diagnosed anxiety disorder that went undiagnosed for many years i suffered with it through a large portion of the show um and almost all of my life i don't know if i would have been able to function in this level of scrutiny at that young age I, 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 I would it, it was it was strong enough to make me not to be gross here, but it's the truth. Being real when you call yourself being real to make me, you know, vomit before almost every episode we ever shot because I was going out in front of such a big crowd for the live taping. It made me constantly sick to my stomach when I would be out doing public appearances and stuff just because of that level of scrutiny would heighten my anxiety. So I honestly cannot imagine or even fathom what it's like for these kids now. This is Tough Talk Radio, and we'll be right back. 21, can you do some for me? Get 21% off when you fuck up a check at TJ Maxx. No cap on God. Flex on your ex-bitch this season in our winter sweaters, hoodies, and joggers. 21, 21, 21. Only at TJ Maxx. Delicious vinyl radio, powered by Dash. 
chrome shoes paralyzed. Getting money like this, people want my vibe. Full of jealousy and pride, hate the way I ride. Sometimes you speak, sometimes you don't. Figure this nigga souped up, cause he cooped up. Guaranteed to rip shit soon as it's looped up. Young nigga slept, swore your girl's panties wasn't wet. I'm a star, double addicted, double R. Never struggle hard to lead a bubble scarred. Not the car, it's the man, daddy cool, put it down. No comparing me to y'all. Who want it? Lay the facts out until the cat's out. Stretch your back out, sweat your tracks out. Blow out your weed. You wake up in the morning to a note, nigga. Had to lean. Be easy. You should have teased me instead of being sleazy. I wouldn't do you greasy. Come across more floors than gold teeth. I learn you can't eat if you hold beef with niggas underneath. Facts, nigga. Invincible, unstoppable. Y'all niggas ain't ill, you're illogical. This is L, the pigeon thriller. Dream fulfiller, a little something for your ice thriller. Drop a bomb on them. When it's time to attack, quiet storm on them. Hold your nuts and keep your palms on them. Keep gangsta shit pumping through my system with my stroke like flash. You can't miss them. Listen. This is Duck Talk Radio where the streets is honking and everybody is talking. So put your earmuffs on. Cause this is Tough Talk Radio with your host, Mr. Preston and Rich Martini. Cause I do talk tough and I do do tough things. Welcome back. You're listening to Tough Talk Radio. I am your host, Mr. Preston, alongside my man, the CEO, Rich Martini. And we have a special guest. This is Jeremy Miller, and you're listening to Tough Talk Radio. Because I do talk tough, and I do do tough things. Ben, you're supposed to be in bed by 9 o'clock. I was. Nobody said anything about how I'm going to stay there. <laughs> I'm thinking it's me as a kid. I mean, because you, you, you were nine years old, I believe. When I started when I was eight, so. And I was playing with G.I. Joe. Ex- exactly. <laughs> oh, same see? here. E-Man and G.I. <laughs> Joe and all that. I could still remember it clearly. How hard was it being, I mean, as us, we think, you know, the limelight, the this, the, you know. But as a kid, was you able to play and have your youth as a kid outside of an actor or a star or a celebrity? Well, that's those two questions actually go hand in hand because that was kind of one of the drawbacks of being involved. And as I've said, any and all of the drawbacks and negative experiences I had were all far outweighed by the incredible experiences I had. Yeah! But Hold on, let me finish. <laughs> you don't even know what I'm about to say. So listen. Being in the limelight at that young age made it hard to mm-hmm. make friends because you didn't know why they liked you. I could see that. You know, once I was on the show, I mean, the very first year I was on the show, we would start filming in early September, right around when school went back. So I wouldn't be in school, I'd be on set working with a set teacher. And then we'd film straight through till about February. That would be an entire season. And then I'd have from February until, or February to March. And then I'd have from then until the next August or September off. And I would go back to school for that second semester. The very first time I went back, I got mobbed. Boy, put your mom on the phone. Really? I mean, literally, I'm, I'm in, I'm eight years old, so I'm what, third grade. I went out on the playground at lunchtime and the entire school, and I'm not kidding, every child in the school, there had to have been over a thousand kids, literally converged on me. What? On the playground. Pause. And the teachers had to come and get me and I ended up eating lunch in the principal's office for like the next few days that, while everybody kind of calmed down and acclimated to the idea of me being there. Is that the is that but, when you 
Is that when you realize this pimping that I got in my blood? It came from a family tree. I'm talking about pimping, been since pimping, since pimping, pimping, since pimping, pimping. Like, like, whoa, I'm a celebrity. Uh, yes. I don't know if I realized the celebrity thing. It was just so weird to me. I can imagine. You know, it's not like I wasn't. I mean, I, I was not an unpopular kid. I, I had friends in the neighborhood and all that. But I mean, to have quite literally the entire school, that was overwhelming and was just very odd. I didn't get it. Um, but those those kind of things were difficult. And on the set, we had some difficulties like any family would. Mm -hmm. That's how I've always described our set. We really did have a 200-person family. From our producers to our directors, the camera guys, the lighting guys. I mean, we knew their family. You know, I knew their kids. Um, we were just all up in each other's lives. Wait a minute, what's that? All up in each other's and, lives. And are you still close with most or majority of that cast? Um, I still talk regularly uh, with Kirk, Tracy, and Joanna. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talk to them every couple of months at least. Joanna's harder to get a hold of because she is an incredibly busy director now. She's an amazing director. And if you've watched any hour-long drama since back in the 90s, late 90s, you've seen something she's directed. I mean, she directed wow. West Wing and ER and Boston Public oh, wow. and Boston Legal and Scrubs. And I mean, just her IMDb goes on forever and ever and ever. So she's always in another country or another state filming something and she's a little harder to get a hold of. But we are all still family. We see each other as often as we can. And yeah, we still all talk when we can as well. Um, I see Tracy around town. We live in the same area. So I, I'll be walking into the grocery store and turn an aisle and she's standing there. Sis, what's going on? <laughs> that's great. That, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's great. I mean, you guys share so much. I mean, seven years on a set with an individual. I mean, that's, I mean, there's marriages that last shorter than that, you know? Mine did. <laughs> So, I mean, that's, Absolutely. that's wonderful that you guys still keep in contact. I mean, and everybody's busy, you know. I see, you know, Kurt, he's doing his things, and congratulations to what he's doing. Um, not everybody may agree or disagree or whatever. I can tell you, you know, I'll tell you a, a little, be, but, sorry to cut you off. Um, I'll tell you a very quick story about that. Alan. Who? Uh, tall guy, nice smile, looks like a talk show host. Who played our dad. Oh, him? Was the one who told Kurt that if he wanted to find this success, he needed to leave Hollywood. Motherfuckers, Jaws is dropped around the world right now. Because in our final couple of seasons, Kirk really went overboard with his faith in that he, he went so far as to st start cutting people out of his life that didn't believe similarly to him. Um, he kind of kept us all at arm's length. He was causing issues with the script writers because he felt we were being too risque. What? And Alan came to him and basically said, What? Listen. Hey, Kurt, you know I love you, but if you think that we're too risque, you got to find another avenue right. in this business other right. than Hollywood. Right. Because we're as tame as it comes. Correct. And if you're going to do, you, you have, if this isn't too much for you, there's nowhere for you to work in mainstream Hollywood. So Kirk took that to heart and he crafted his own path to still, you know, filmmaking and doing these documentaries he does and stuff like that. Um, and again, you know, I love I love my brother. I will always love him. I love Tracy. I love Joanna. But, you know, like in any family, I'm, I love my brother, 
you love your family, I'm sure, but you know, you don't always agree. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, that's, hey, that's personalities. You know, me and my partner, we, we don't, we don't, we see eye to eye on some things, and then a lot of things we don't see eye to eye. <laughs> so, you know, so it may be an argument one day, but at the end of the day, it's we know love, it's right? all love. You know what I mean? No, so I, I have a two part question because I see you were on another iconic show. Um, that I also watched as a kid, uh, Punky Brewster. Um, was that your first role? And then also, how did you, you know, get into acting? What, what drove you to, uh, to acting at such a young age? Um, Punky Brewster was actually my second part. Uh, the first role I got was on Different Strokes. That was my first TV role. Another, my, another my very first part show. was, oh yeah, no, I, it went, when it finally started hitting for me, I'll go back. I'll answer that part, the rest of that in a second. I'll go back and I'll answer your second question. I was, you know, I started taking singing lessons when I was like three years old or something like that, three and a half years old. Um, always loved to sing when I was a kid. Uh, I took lessons at a place called Mickey Rooney's Talent Town. Okay. And Mickey Rooney, the, you know, original child star from the, you know, 1940s was he basically set these up for kids to learn anything they wanted to learn in the performance biz. So you could learn singing, dancing, acting, and I mean, all kinds of dance, jazz and tap and ballet. And I mean, anything you wanted to learn, you could learn there. And uh, Mickey even came and visited us a few times, which as a kid was a really cool thing. Um, but one of my singing teachers, her daughters were in the business and she just kind of came to my mom around five years old and said, have you ever thought about putting him on TV? I mean, he's he's got the personality, he's cute, and he doesn't shut up. He's perfect for it. And <laughs> my mom, you know, thought, well, he, he walks around the house repeating lines from all his favorite TV shows. I mean, that's what I did. I, I would re just walk around the house repeating scenes from Brady Bunch and Chips and you know, anything else I was watching back then. And my mom just asked me when I was like five years old or so, what would you think about trying to be like one of those kids on, on TV? And I, you know, I mean, you're five, you don't know any better. And it sounded cool to me. So I was right. like, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. And I was lucky enough that I fell in love with it. You know, I absolutely loved it from day one. Um, and I'm very blessed in that because yes I had a choice I mean my mother did ask me but I was five right. so <laughs> I'm not sure how you know important that choice was but um, you know I just I love doing it I loved being on the road going to auditions being with my mom and my brother um, I loved getting in front of the camera and performing and it just it just worked for me and I never had I mean there were negatives always along the way but they're always smaller and well outweighed by the positives so that's kind of how I got started we just started auditioning we found an agent um, my very first job was a McDonald's commercial um, with okay there were three kids in that who all went on to do a lot of stuff the first was a kid named Brandon Call the second was a kid named R.J. Williams. Now, both of them 
worked all through the 80s and early 90s. I mean, if you if you would Google those names or IMDb, you'll see practically every major show, sitcom or otherwise. And they both, I believe, had sitcoms of their own and pilots that just didn't get picked up. Um, so they were very good actors. And then the third kid was Jaleel White, of course, Urkel from Family Matters. So there was the four of us all in this one McDonald's commercial at like five and six years old. Wow. And we all went on to work, you know, consistently for the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, so that was a pretty, you know, small world, strange occurrence kind of a little thing. But that was my first job. And then after about three more years of auditioning, uh, two and a half years of auditioning, over 450 auditions, wow. I finally got another job. Um, I, it was a long dry spell and to tell you the God's honest truth, right before my mom came to me and we had just gotten done with an audition and she sat me down on this bench and, um, she said, look, I don't think we're going to be able to do this much longer. If, you know, if something doesn't happen, we really need to, you know, so it didn't change anything for me. I was already doing everything I could, but we honestly both just started praying. And I don't know if you guys pray or not, but we both started praying. And I swear to you, within within four weeks, I started booking almost everything I got. I went out on. Wow. Um, See that that everyone so, listening, everyone listening, don't give up. Don't give up that that. Just imagine if you had given up on before that four hundred and fifty first uh try you know so um exactly that's, that's inspiring exactly. that's what's up you are listening to tough talk radio we will be right back
clack clack what's happening y'all this mitchy slick you tapped in with black league entertainment yeah that yo yo what's up this is dj red-handed you know how we do right now you're listening to tough talk radio have a question because actually i have a relative or a friend that is going through something that you went through and that was alcohol and alcoholism um you mm-hmm. gave up alcohol so again congratulations to you and going through that um thank you very much when did you notice that you had a drinking problem hmm I was or or actually let me rephrase always, this. What I, what were the circumstances to you that realized like man like I have a drinking problem and I got to do something about this? Well, there were definitely stages. Um, I was always a binge drinker. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the genetic alcoholism in my family or not. Um, it does run up and down both my mom and dad's lines. Um, so the genetic possibility is there, but I started drinking it around. It's a disputed fact. My grandmother says four and a half. My mom says it was closer to six and a half years old. Um, yes. You are wild. Oh my God. Now, (laughs) basically what I would do, I, my grandparents would throw these big parties Yeah, baby. (laughs) and after the party, I would come down and I would finish off what was left in all the beer cans. Wow. Beer? And beer at that? At, at your yeah. age? Wow. At I would think age, of yeah, like a, it was a somewhere between drink. four and a half and six. Wow. No, this was beer. And Sweet. I liked it apparently because I would just do it and do it and do it until I got drowsy and then I'd go pass out in grandpa's chair. Who does that? And of course being typical seventies social drinkers and, you know, functional alcoholics, my grandparents thought it was funny. What? You know, it was it was amusing. Nobody saw. I mean, it was. I mean, because I wasn't drinking a large. I mean, you're talking a couple of swallows, pause in each can, and I'd get through maybe six, seven of them, and then I, you know, and, 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 and not to cut grandpa's chair, and not to cut you off for the, our listeners. Different times, completely different times. Seventies, eighties, different times. Oh yeah, so, you know. So I don't want people to be like, oh, how can someone's parents or grandparents do that right now? Like. 
completely different times. I mean, but, but it, I gotta it say, I it gotta say, very... but even back then, I don't know. That's questionable. Oh, I agree. I mean, looking back, but our family was always a little wild, a little out there, a little off center. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. My, my uncle was a hell's angel. Holy uh, shit. My grandfather was a pool hustler back in the sixties. Ah. So we've always, as a family, been a little bit on the fringe. You know, you know what time um, it is already. But yeah, it was a very different time. I mean, heck, I, and I have many friends who have this exact same story from back then. My grandfather used to take me to the bar with him yeah. on Saturdays. And, you know, he'd sit me up on the bar. He'd order me a Shirley Temple. He'd have his beer and whiskey or whatever he was having. And he'd shoot pool with his friends and shoot the bowl. And I'd hustle pool with him. And, you know, we'd have a good time. That wasn't that out of the norm back then. You know, I have I have so many friends. And when I've told that story, I've had so many people go, me too. You know, my dad used to take me to his local or my grandpa used to take me to his local. Um, so it was a very different time, but that was the beginning of my drinking. And then I didn't have any more alcohol experience. Well, it ended when I caught a butt camp. Um, <laughs> you had to explain that one that, uh, I don't know how long it went on for, but, uh, yeah, apparently I caught one with a bunch of cigarette butts in it. And that was oh, the end of that experience. That's what it quite. is. That's all that is. Got it. <laughs> okay. Got it. Butt can. Oh man, that that so yeah, that that put a stop. Oh yeah, that put a stop to that real quick. Um, But around twelve years old, again, I went with a friend who had a beach volleyball wear company, and young guy, but you know, he's had money, and him and his partner created this clothing line for volleyball players and you know back in the late 80s volleyball especially beach volleyball was huge Mm -hmm. and we got to go down to the big championships down in Hermosa Beach and they had backstage VIP passes so we got to go meet all the players and we basically just spent the day down there playing volleyball on the off courts meeting the guys and drinking beer at 12 years old and now these guys were all older than me you know, yes, they should not have done that. But again, people always, I mean, yes, I was young, but I carried myself older. People didn't think of me as just a, you know, young, dumb 12 year old. I had to act like an adult on set. I had to act like an adult at work. I had to interact with adults constantly. So, but at the same time, they can Jeremy, be forgiven a little. But at the same time, Jeremy, you know, I, Hey, you're Jeremy Miller. Cats are going to want to party with you. Correct. You know, like, you know, well, and that's, I, I, even that's, at 12 I guarantee and a half. that was part of it. Let's party. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that, that, I mean, guarantee that was probably part of it too. You know, so, I mean, I, I can understand that. We drank all day long. I mean, given at that age, and especially that was my first alcohol experience since being so young, you know, we, we split like a, I don't know, a 30 case between like, you know, four or five of us over a, you know, six eight hour period a lot of bang for your butt like and then went to parties up and down manhattan beach and just kept drinking beer and drinking beer and drinking beer to the point where i got incredibly sick at this guy's house we never knew which house we were whose house we were at the owners were rarely even there they just opened their doors during this big festival for the volleyball parade for the volleyball uh, tournament 
And I ran to the bathroom, and of course there's a line of like six people, so I go and I end up vomiting in this poor guy's kitchen sink. And then I immediately, after, you know, cleaning up a little bit, I immediately turned around, went right to the cooler, and started drinking again. So even then, at 12 years old, I knew that wasn't normal. That's kind of where I, why I say I was always a binge drinker. I never had an off button. Yeah. But it didn't become a daily thing until around, oh, I want to say 24 years old or so, 24, 25. Um, I really, I had a big kind of like, not breakthrough, but I had a bunch of past trauma. Um, I was abused by my stepfather, uh, kind of rear its head. Pause. And I ran. I ran into the bottle because that was my comfort at that time. Even though I wasn't drinking every day, if I, you know, needed to feel better, if I was going somewhere and I wanted to settle my anxiety, that was my solution was drinking. So I didn't want to think about all this trauma. I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. So what tool that I have at my disposal? I had alcohol. And I started drinking pretty much every day. And there came a point when I was maybe 31 or so, about seven years into my everyday drinking, that I woke up one morning and realized I had to have a drink. Not I wanted a drink, not I'd like a drink, but I needed a drink more than anything. And that set off a red flag. Um, but <laughs> I didn't do anything about it. It definitely put me on notice, but I just kind of continued doing what I was doing. And um, it got really bad. I was a blackout drunk, so I never remembered what I did. I regularly had to go down and walk around my car and make sure there were no giant dents or anything else to make sure I hadn't killed anyone the night before because I often drove drunk and I'm incredibly ashamed of how many times I put people's lives at risk. Um, it was bad. It was really bad for a while. I was an angry man who was terrorizing my family. I was never physically violent, but I was an angry rage machine who yelled and screamed all the time. And my fiance would basically keep our boys out of the house running errands after school until as late as she could to keep them away from me. And uh, I woke up one morning and Joni, my fiance, was sitting at the edge of the bed again looking pissed again <laughs> and I had to sit up and ask her that question I hated to ask what I do so what did I do this time right now and that was the last straw for me okay now I was gonna ask that because um you know my oldest son you know struggles with alcohol abuse he's um in a rehab facility right now this is his third stint there um, that was the question that I was going to ask you. What was the breaking point for you? Um, and then when you got to that breaking point, what were the steps for you to get your life back together? Well, it was a long process at that point because 
there's not one thing that works for everybody. Right. Yes, there are things that have better success rates than others and so forth, but it's all about what you can make work. And for me, I tried just about everything. Um, I, I went to, you know, I went to rehab. I did inpatient. I did outpatient. Um, therapy. I tried, you know, psych, psychological therapy. I tried meditation, um, hypnosis. I basically ran the gam- gamut of every possible modality for recovery I could find. Um, and then, miracle of miracles for me, my mom came across this um, internet video about this medicine they were using in Australia um, to help block the cravings for alcohol. Mm. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? There's not, nothing can fix this. So I, I, but I ended up learning more about it. It was a great program. Um, it's a company called BioCorex. Um, and they, it's, it's a medicine known as naltrexone, which is actually used to combat opiates as well. It's in the naloxone shot they give to people who are overdosing. Um, but it works on the same receptors as uh, alcohol. And it helps to block the cravings. For some people, like me, it blocked them completely. Like within three to four hours, I went into a liquor store, a gas station, and paid for gas and walked out without even looking at the booze for the first time in, oh, 15 years at that point. Wow. So it was an amazing transformation for me. For some people, it just helps to suppress the cravings. But for me, it was what I needed to get over the hump and then start doing the real work of recovery. Um, Because the medicine's just a tool. You know, the medicine's not a cure. It's just a tool. And after, you know, once, once it's working and you're not being bombarded with that craving anymore, then you can actually start doing the work and start working on yourself and start, you know, doing... AA or or NA or you know smart recovery or celebrate recovery or any of these wonderful programs out there um, you know or even therapy if that's what works for you so it's it's just so much easier to do when you're not hearing I need a drink I need a drink I need a drink louder than everything else and so, so for me, that was what worked. Was it a pill or what? I mean, it's it's available in pill form. It's also available in a, the pill is a daily. Um, the shot form is once every 30 days. Um, and then what I did is the implantable version. And it's basically just a biodegradable pellet of the medicine. And they um, implant it in the fatty tissue in your lower abdomen. And, and not and that you and not that you're you know sponsored by these people or anything like that. But I mean, this is something that they a person can go to their doctor and talk to them about it. This product. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is something anybody can talk to their doctors about. It's called the drug is called naltrexone, um, but the implantable version. I think there are a few companies out there. From what I saw, I did. I full disclosure, I worked with them in the clinic for three years afterwards because I wanted to give back. I wanted to tell more people about it and what it had done for me. 
but I, I am not paid by them. I'm not a, you know, corp, you know, company show or anything else. I right. tell people this because it worked for me and it saved my, helped save my life. Right. So, um, but no, anybody can talk to their doctor about this. Like I said, it's available in shot form. It's available in pill form. And I went ahead and, ahead and had the implantable version because I know me. And if my brain is saying I need a drink and that medicine's wearing off, I'm not going for the next shot. Right. I'm going to the liquor store. Right. So I, I wanted something that was going to be with me for, you know, months at a time. And, uh, yeah, it takes like, I think it's around four to six months for the pill to dissolve. But that gives you that window. And that's what it gave me. It gave me that window to start doing the real recovery work. And I still do it. I still, you know, work with people in recovery to this day. Um, I still go to different meetings. I still do um, counseling and therapy and stuff like that based around my addiction. So it's, it's, a, it's a constant thing. I mean, again, it's an old tenant of recovery, but, you know, you're never cured. Right. You know, you just, you have another day's reprieve. And that's, that's the truth. You know, it is, it is a lifelong battle. It doesn't go away. But once you can get some time under your belt and some sobriety, you know, it becomes easier. Another platitude is, you know, it's easier to stay sober than to get sober. And that's the God's honest truth. It's simple, it's corny, it's cliche, but it is the God's honest truth. It is so much easier to just do the things you're supposed to do and, you know, than trying to get sober once again. I've, I've had to do it multiple times and it sucks because I failed many times before I finally got long-term sobriety. Absolutely. This is Tough Talk Radio and we'll be right back.
So, so switching gears just a bit, right? Um, you know, I hear you're a big sports fan, and um, the news oh, heck, that yeah. is uh, permeating uh, uh, college football now is uh, Deion Sanders going to Colorado. I mean, it's like the biggest story in college football. Tell me about your thoughts on mm-hmm. that. What do, you, what do you think is going to happen? Is he going to shake up? Uh, the Pac-12 and, um, you know, college football nationally. What are, you, what are your thoughts? I think he can definitely do it. I, I honestly do. I don't, I'm not predicting his failure. Colorado's a hard place to do it at. Correct. Colorado hasn't seen success, you know, consistently in a very long time since the game was played a whole different way. Right. But his star power and his ability to attract talent because guess what he knows if you want to you know if you want to know how to get to the NFL how to be a successful pro football player and then how to be a successful man and businessman afterwards there aren't very many people better who are coaches that can teach you that you know be and he's lived it so that's attractive to a lot of players I think they're definitely going to see a big influx in talent. Um, we'll see then 
how good his coaching staff is and his actual X's and O's are. But I think just on recruiting and the ability to, you know, to do that, I think he's going to turn things around, at, you know, at least visibly. It's going to, you're going to see more wins. You're going to see more talent coming into Colorado. Both, both Rich and I are big football fans, man. Who, who's your team? Who, do, who, who are you rooting for? And on the pro level, I'm a born I, on the pro level. I actually, I was, I'm, I'm a longtime Rams fan, but I have to admit that they ripped my heart out when they left for St. Louis and then won a championship for another city. Right, <laughs> and I've had, I've had trouble restarting my level of enthusiasm. I still root for them, but I'm not a diehard like I once was. Right. Um, my level of enthusiasm has not gotten back to that. I follow college football a lot more closely these days. Who do you like? I mean, who do you like huge. in college? Oh, I'm a diehard SC fan, diehard Trojan, um, lifelong. I mean, from seven years old, watching my first Rose Bowl, um, I have been a huge, huge USC fan. So. But then again, I root for, I mean, I'm a huge college football fan, so I watch the SEC, the Big Ten. I love the the MAC and the, you know, the other smaller conferences. You always get some wild games in there. Um, so, but yeah, I, I, and. So do you like, do you like the SC moving over to the, to the Big Ten? To the Big Ten? I personally am more of a traditionalist. I don't like the idea of a West Coast team in the Midwest. Um, but I get it. It's a money move. The visibility and the dysfunction in the Pac-12 in particular, and you know anybody who's been a fan of the teams in the Pac-12 knows the last twenty years the Pac-12 leadership has just been lost. I mean, completely lost. They have no idea what they're doing. They're signing horrible marketing deals and horrible television rights deals and just all this stuff that's been detrimental to every team in the Pac-12. So I get why they would bolt. I understand it. The visibility, the extra money, and not having to deal with the dysfunction that exists in the Pac-12, it, it makes sense. But I, I'm a traditionalist, man. I, I, I'm going to miss them playing in the Rose Bowl regularly, you know, for the Pac-12, you know, after winning the Pac-12 championship. I'm going to miss all those rivalries and uh i mean heck i'm 45 years you know 46 years old and i've been a fan since i was like six or seven years old so for 40 years we've been in the pac-12 and it's uh you know Shoot. it's not my favorite uh, but oh, I, I get I, it i bet it must have broke your heart when they lost all oh, the utah oh for the second time it did but at the same time this whole season has been such a you know kind of a miracle anyway everything coming together so quickly i really thought we'd be sitting at nine and three at the end of the season if you'd asked me at the beginning of the season so i still was very happy with the progress and i'm very excited about next year so I mean, it was a little heartbreaking caleb is a special player man i mean if if, if, if you guys can get that defense uh on track um, you guys should be, you know, USC should be in, 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 uh, national championship contention. I mean, they were this year. If they could have pulled that game off against Utah, I don't think that they would have just based on 
you know, not being able to play defense, it would have been tough against, you know, Georgia, uh, Michigan, oh, I, you know, Ohio State. Ha- it would have I- been tough. I have to say, I'm actually, I mean, as, as much as it hurt to lose that game, I really don't know if it would have been good for our team's psyche to go to Georgia and lose by like 50 or oh. 60 points, which I think we would have. I <laughs> mean, game, I love, I love my team. <laughs> yes. Well, oh, yeah. No, then, I love my team, but I'm also a realist. Right. And had we played Georgia, it would have been a massacre. So... I think things went well. You know, we still get a good bowl game, respectable season. The recruits are interested and they see what's going on and the changes that are happening. So I, I look at the season as nothing but a good, as a, as a win. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you on that one. That's why I think TCU shouldn't have got in, boy, because whew, horrible game for them. Oh, yeah. What do you think about this this transfer? Well, you got to love it because it got you the Heisman Trophy winner this year. Um, but what do you well, think about the transfer, I mean, I, the transfer portal? How do you feel about that? I certainly can't complain too much. With, uh, you know, as you said, Caleb winning the Heisman this year. But it's, it's tough. I think it's really shaken up college football and it's taken away you know a few things it definitely i like the idea that it gives the players more options um you know players have have really been kind of tied to where they are under very strict rules as to well if you leave now you you've got to sit out this many years or so i like seeing players have more options but at the same time you get less and less of those stories of you know the third string quarterback who stuck around for four years after being, you know, a star in high school and then finally gets his chance and, and shine, you know, or That's definitely just, th- just those kind of things. I, I'm, I'm going to miss <laughs> because the transfer portal definitely takes away from that. Yeah. So to those, to those boosters too. The boosters don't miss that too because it was easy. Oh, you're telling me. <laughs> well, I mean, the NIL deals now. I mean, it it, it makes it it makes it you know kind of legal. Can you imagine if they had those NIL deals back in the day when you know we always knew the college uh, uh, football players that the big ones were getting paid houses and all this other stuff. But the NIL deals, it's like the wild, wild west now, where you can be a kid coming out of You gotta bring up the houses thing, huh? You gotta bring up the bush thing. Really? Really? Well, I mean, hey, look. It it hasn't been long enough. It's still painful. We're from San Diego. So we know Bush. We know about the Reggie Bush thing very, very, very intimately. Yes. Lord of the mercy. All night, Sunday, Central. From the first to the last of it, delivery is passionate. The whole and not the half of it, forecasting aftermath. From the first to the last of it, delivery is passionate. The whole and not the half of it, forecasting aftermath of it. Project all and I'm blessed away. Accurate assassin shit. Me and Polly close like Bethlehem and Nazareth. After this, you be pressing rewind on top of your master. This shining like an asterisk for all those that you gather. Connecting like a roundhouse from the townhouse to the tenements. Cause all my Brooklyn residents don't have heavy regiments. Don't believe here the evidence. We're Brooklyn. Brooklyn. 
Brooklyn, New York City, where they paint murals of Biggie and Cash. We trust, cause it's get a fabulous life, look pretty. Brooklyn, New York City, where they paint murals of Biggie and Cash. We trust, cause it's get a fabulous life, look pretty. What a pity, blunts are still 50 cents, it's intense. Street sense is dominant, can't be covered with incense. My presence felt, my name is Quali from the eternal reflection. People think your MC is your hand for misconception. Let me meditate, set it straight. Came to the conclusion that most of these cats is featherweight. Let me demonstrate, walking the streets is like battling. Be careful with your body. You must know karate, you think it's all is bulletproof like Jade. Stop acting like a bitch already, be a visionary. And maybe you can see your name in the column of obituaries. Third grade teacher reading and talking about, I knew he'd amount to nothing. Neighbors like he was the quiet type. Who'd have thought they was fronting? Talking loud like you and RCA. Get carted away with body parts and trays. What a way to start your day. Yo, it's like. One, two, Keep on making it, Brooklyn keep on taking it So relax, we're taking me back Red Hook where we're living at Plenty guys be struggling and hustling and bubbling It ain't about production and what is we discussing When the cock crows, my crop grows And they want me to rock flows Driving for perfection ever since I was a snot nose Colossal, true original, we were apostle Standing on the rooftop with the Zulu Gustavo You think you the shit, somebody in the wings will force you to quit It could be your crew or click or some random kid you smoke Buddha with Consider me the entity within the industry Without a history of spitting the epitome of stupidity living my life expressing my liberty you gotta be done properly my name is in the middle of equality people follow me and other cats to hear them flow and assume i'm the real one with the lyrics like i'm Cyrano. still sipping with your well water imported from pluto 360 milliliters for all the believers in miles of kilometers most cats cannot proceed us in the jungle with the leaders we the lions you the cheetahs i'll say we'll complete us as we come through your receivers you can play us and repeat us and then take us on marita good jesus Seven quality just make a pussy freeze up, thinking over ease up. One, two, three, most seven time in quality. We came to rock it all to the tip top. Best alliance in hip hop. Quiet. I said one, two, three. It's kinda dangerous to be a MCE. It's shot to park and making. Hold your head when the beat drop. Quiet. Welcome back. You're listening to Tough Talk Radio. I am your host. Mr. Preston alongside my man, the CEO, Rich Martini, and we have a special guest. This is Jeremy Miller, and you're listening to Tough Talk Radio. Because I do talk tough, and I do do tough things. Before we go, I know this is something else that you got cooking in the kitchen that, you know I mean, literally that you got, going, in, that you got going on, and we, we want to get into because food, I love food. Love Our food. partner loves to cook food. He, he loves food, <laughs> and, you know, so... Tell us about this new show that you got going on. Well, I actually do these cooking party classes. I've been a chef, uh, classically trained for many years. And basically I go into someone's home and I teach, you know, anywhere from six to 12 of their friends, four to five dishes in whatever style they want to learn. And they get to eat the food as I'm cooking it. And I give them the history and teach them all how to make it. It's just a fun time. And what we decided to do is we're going to expand that into a two-day event and basically do it like a cooking show. So we'll have an audience, and then we'll also have 12 people, VIPs, up front around the cooking island, basically, having a class with me. And basically, the 12 people sitting up front 
will be able to interact, ask questions, and directly learn the dishes. But they'll also be eating, tasting portions of everything that I make as we go along. And then the audience is actually going to be cooked my menu by the um, staff and chefs for the Blackwater Creek Event Center in Bedford, Virginia, where we're going to be doing this event. Um, and they're going to be cooking for the whole audience, so everybody gets to try all of the dishes on my uh, on my menu. So it's just a chance for everybody to come and take part in one of my big cooking classes. And we're doing it to benefit two really, really wonderful organizations. Um, the first one is the Bedford International Film Festival, and it's an organization that's trying to give basically a platform for local artists and filmmakers and also international artists and filmmakers who are in areas that generally don't get a lot of notice by the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. They're trying to give them a platform to get their work seen and to get their, um, their abilities noticed. They're also starting to offer classes and training and things for these young artists and aspiring filmmakers to kind of get better at their craft as well. So it's a great organization. I got hooked up with them about four years ago, and um, we're going to be donating a portion of the proceeds to them. And then the second organization is New Freedom Farms, also in Virginia. Or Sorry, New Freedom Farm, no S. And... Uh, in Bedford, Virginia, and they work with um, veterans and uh, first responders dealing with PTSD and trauma, and what they do is they have a full working farm, and they use equine therapy, which is the patient, the, the men and women forming relationships and helping take care of the horses. They actually work around the farm doing physical labor, things that they can immediately see the impact of their actions and their you know um their hard work and they can get that immediate gratification and feedback from that and it's just a very healing process and they've been having great results with helping these veterans and first responders um you know through dealing with these traumas so you know it's really close to my heart most of my family um has served at one point or another in the military and um it's a, it's a wonderful organization. So those are the two that we're going to be benefiting. And the event is coming up on the 17th and 18th. Um, tickets are all sold out for these two. But we're going to be doing another event, probably there in Bedford again, um, in February around um, Valentine's Day. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. So, I mean, so when, when you, t- what kind of foods are you cooking? I mean, what, what is your specialty? I mean, you're not doing the hood classic macaronis and cheese and stuff, you know? I mean, what's hey, your. I, I love me some mac and some greens. So trust me. But no, um, I was classically French trained. I actually studied in China for a little bit as well. Um, I have a, I'm very ADD. So I've learned Indian and all sorts of other cuisines. I grew up cooking Southern and Cajun and Creole. Um, I have an affinity for Italian. So I'm all over the place as a chef. I can put together a menu in almost any style you would care to try and have. Um, What I love to cook most, it all depends on my mood that day, truthfully. I'm so ADD, it could be smoking barbecue one day and cooking uh you know italian meal the next and then doing 
soup and, you know, soup and uh, some sort of sandwich thing for my family. I just, I'm all over the place. I now, can focus for a client, but. <laughs> so, so now when you got into cooking, was this something that you were always passionate about or is this something that you kind of just, just got into and then just found that it, it you know, it, it grew within you? I mean, um, pause, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what was it that made you like really get into cooking? Well, like many people, it was my grandmother. Um, I, I grew up cooking in the kitchen with her basically when, when I was very young, my grandmother would, it was for Thanksgiving for new year's and for Easter. She would cook a huge meal and we would have the whole neighborhood basically over. And my grandmother's, I mean, all their friends, all their work friends, every friend they knew in the neighborhood, but also everyone in the neighborhood who didn't have somewhere to be for the holiday knew they could come to my grandma's and get a plate. So even the homeless in our area knew they could come in come to my grandma's and get a meal on the holiday and we had probably 200 people come through in a day and my grandmother and i would cook for like three days leading up to that we'd cook you know two 30 pound birds and a 30 pound ham and pies for days and mounds of sides and you know i just i always loved being in the kitchen cooking with her and always kind of had a had a love for it then And then when I was about nine years old, 10 years old, she bought a restaurant with my grandfather. And I would go up there on the summers when we weren't filming and I would work in the kitchen with her during the summers. But of course I didn't call it work. I called it hanging out with grandma. Um, But over four years, I worked myself up from busboy to breakfast cook. And I just learned kind of what goes on in the restaurant. I fell in love with it. And years later, when I had decided to step away from acting for a while and found that getting the door to open again when I went back was not as easy as I remembered, um, I decided, well, you know, I probably should have something else that I can do to pay the bills as well. And cooking was always a passion for me. So I went to the Le Cordon Bleu program out here in Los Angeles. And uh, that was the beginning of my career as a chef. So, so this show. So now, is this this cooking thing that you're doing now? This show is it going to be what channels it broadcasts? Is it a show that's going to be broadcast? Is it something that's on a private network? I we're mean, a- we're actually not going to be broadcasting it. It's an exclusive event for the, the these ones are an exclusive event for the people who are donating money for the tickets. Okay. Um, uh, and there's, like I said, limited number of tickets. But we are going to be filming it to see about piecing it together as a new show that maybe we can do. I have contacts at Food Network and a few other networks that feature, you know, lots of cooking content. And uh, they've been talking to me about different ideas we can do and this is one of them so we are going to be filming it and cutting it together and hopefully you guys will get a chance to see that on one of the networks um maybe not this one but this show taken to different cities to work with different charities um 
maybe you guys will get to see that on one of the big networks. And now you, you're also talking about this, was it Bedford Film Festival? The Bedford International Film Festival, yep. And, and then what are you doing and how are you partaking in that uh, film festival? Well, I was a um, I was a panelist the very first year. Uh, we had a group of actors on to speak with the filmmakers. And I'm also possibly going to be judging submissions um, in the next up in the upcoming film festivals that they hold but I also might be teaching some acting classes with them as well I just I really love the organization and I love that town and I love getting to go there and work with these young filmmakers so right now it's just an organization that I support and I'm trying to find more ways that I can be involved and help them and that one is t uh, that one is taking place in what state it's Bedford Virginia Jeremy man we really appreciate you taking some time and reaching out giving us a call we love talking about the show and and you giving us a little insight of your history uh, my partner Warren you know what I mean? So from Tough Talk Radio, we really appreciate you sitting down with us, letting us get to know you a little bit better. I appreciate you guys having me on. This has been a fun, fun Absolutely. One. Thanks so much. We appreciate it, man. And, uh, you know, you're definitely welcome back anytime. And we're definitely going to be following uh, you. Um, are you on are you on uh, social media? If so, let everybody know um, how they can follow you and how they can reach out to you. And um, we definitely want to follow what you're doing as well. Absolutely. It's the real Jeremy Miller on Instagram and Mr. Jeremy James Miller on Facebook. All right, Jeremy. Well, I appreciate your time, man. It's great talking to you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Jeremy Miller, and you're listening to Tough Talk Radio. This planet was small We used to live in the same building on the same floor And never met before until I'm overseas on tour And peeped this Ethiopian queen from Philly taking classes abroad She's studying film and photo flash focus record Said she working on a flick and cut my click through the score She said she loved my show in Paris at Elysee Montmartre And that I stepped off the stage and took a piece of her heart We knew from the start that things fall apart Intense and shatter she like That shit don't matter when I get home Get out of through letter phone Whatever, let's link, let's get together. Shit, you think not? Think the thought went home and forgot. Time passed. We back in Philly, now she up in my spot. Telling me the things I'm telling her is making her hot. Started building with her constantly round the clock. Now she in my world like hip hop and keep telling me, telling me, yeah. I'm the type that's always catching a flight And sometimes I got to be out at the height of the night And that's when she flipping get on some old Another lonely night, seem like I'm on the side You only loving your mind I know you gotta get that paper, daddy Keep that shit tight But yo, I need some sort of love in my life You dig me? While politicking with my sister from New York City She says she know this ball player And he think I'm pretty inside on the topic of trust It's just a matter of fact That people bite back And fracture what's intact And they'll forever be I ain't on some, oh, I'm a celebrity, I deal with the real. So if it's artificial, let it be. I've seen people caught in love like whirlwinds. Listening to these squads and listening to girlfriends. That's exactly the point where they whole world ends. Lies come in, that's where the 